Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode. Well, you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss the fate of the Ocean Gate Titan submarine. But first, let's go to Moscow just as uh, one... Uh, I believe his name is Ivany Prigozhin. I uh, my the pronunciation of Russian names is probably not what it should be. Evgeny Prigozhin, who's the leader of the Wagner Group, this is a Russian paramilitary force that uh, I'll read here from the Morning Dispatch summary. Mounted a short-lived rebellion over the weekend, allegedly in response to Russian airstrikes against Wagner troops. Prigozhin, who has clashed with Russian military leaders for months, led his forces from positions in Ukraine back into Russia, taking control of Rostov-on-Don, a city in southern Russia, and meeting little resistance while proceeding north on a path towards Moscow. As Wagner grew closer to both the capital and a likely battle with Russian security forces, Prigozhin and Russian President Vladimir Putin agreed to a deal negotiated by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko that halted the rebellion. Prigozhin will reportedly move to Belarus, and the Russian charges facing him and his troops for their rebellion will be dropped. So this was this is one of those things where I'm actually going to take a moment here, and I'm going to defend something that we dump on on a regular basis and for good reason. Twitter. Uh, this was a pretty good way to follow what was unfolding. And again, you have to – there's always the fog of war problem. Uh, so you have to sort through the stuff that you believe and don't believe and you have to find sources who are credible. And one of the great things about spending some time curating uh, people that you follow who you think are uh, responsible – is often they have very good recommendations because everybody has their niche interests. And I did find uh, a couple of good recommendations for people to follow to document what was going on with this coup attempt uh, in Russia or a rebellion, again, as it was uh, termed here by the Morning Dispatch. Uh, one of the first things that it kind of needed to establish was whether or not this was actually happening. Um it is it gets so easy for misinformation or wrong information or misinterpreted information to be coming out of Russia. We have this problem a lot in the war in Ukraine, and uh, it was happening, and we saw some pretty wild photographs uh, and video clips. Uh, one of the most was – I can't remember which city it was, but you see these Wagner group paramilitary guys who are – it looks like they're laying down suppressing fire, and there's just like – this dude in sandals and shorts who's just like a citizen just kind of standing behind them. And it was it was a wild thing to see. But I want to pose the question of uh, what does all of this mean uh, and what is going to come of it? Because one would think that taking your paramilitary group, turning it towards the capital of the country that employs you – Allegedly for the purpose of, at least as many believed, taking out the leader of that country and deposing him, and whether or not that was actually their agenda, it's very hard to say. But that's certainly what it looked like. Uh, what do we make of all of this and what do we think is going to happen now, not just with regard to Vladimir Putin's control of the country, but with regard to the war in Ukraine? I, I did see – and I'll say this and then I will, I'll turn it over to everybody else. I did see someone who I, I don't consider to be a, um irresponsible party by any stretch of the imagination who said that you know he's out in D.C., talks to a lot of foreign policy people. That there was an interpretation about this that when you look at the way it was resolved, 
like this guy is basically going to get to go to Belarus. The charges against him and his troops are dropped, which seems pretty weak from Vladimir Putin's side, that perhaps this was done as a spectacle uh, arranged by Putin himself in order to provide some sort of a pretext to begin to draw down troops in Ukraine because of how poorly that military operation has been going for a while now. And I find that to be the kind of thing that I just cannot dismiss out of hand, especially when one knows about the history of Vladimir Putin. I mean, this is a guy who was widely believed to have uh, bombed, I think it was an apartment building in Chechnya as a pretext to sending troops in. So you can't say that it's beyond him. But as with almost anything going on in that region of the world, it is very hard to suss out what is real from what is just conjecture to what is misunderstanding. So I throw all of that on the table for your thoughts. So the the impetus for this, and maybe you have the details in front of you, I, I believe was accusations that the Russian military had shelled or bombed, you know, a unit of this Wagner. Correct. Um, so that that's the start of this. Um, and I believe they also explicitly called out like the military general and not Putin himself. Not that that should make that much of a difference because they're still marching on Moscow. I'll read real quick here from, again, from the Morning Dispatch. Uh, Prigozhin has long been a vocal critic of the Russian Ministry of Defense, lobbing insults at the defense minister, Sergei Shugu. Again, apologies for the pronunciations of of the names here. And uh, Chief of the General Staff, Valery Gerasimov, throughout the war in Ukraine. As the Morning Dispatch reported last month, Prigozhin threatened to withdraw from the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut in May, where his men had been engaged in a brutal fight for control of the city. He accused the defense ministry of purposefully withholding ammunition to Wagner forces, a claim he'd made in the past, uh, before being dizzyingly indecisive on whether or not his forces would leave the city. Ultimately, his mercenaries remained seizing the city. Uh, But yes, you are correct on the allegations that uh, Russian military had bombed this uh, uh, paramilitary operation, the Wagner Group. Yeah, so it's it's interesting for a th- few things. Uh, I think. I mean, we you know when in Iraq we used I believe BlackRock and other Blackwater. Para- Blackwater, sorry, yeah, Blackwater, other para- So it's not something that countries uh, don't do in the modern era, uh, but it does make you wonder about uh, the state of the Russian armed forces that they need to seek paramilitary help or want to, um, whatever the case may be. Um, and then you see this, this, you know, very real and genuine conflict between, you know, you have the Russian military, which gets its orders from Russian generals, and you have this other group, which is independently run, uh, and they're doing it on contract, they're mercenaries. Um, so, and they're huge, right? Like 30,000, something like that. Like that's, that's not nothing at all. Um, so that's a big deal. Um, however, there's at least a, a few things to me bothered me about it. I mean, one, you know, I certainly want this war to be over. I think um, Russia should not have invaded Ukraine. Hopefully that's an uncontroversial statement. Uh, Russia should stop bombing Ukraine. Um, but there were people also just, you know, immediately, which is, you're right, the Twitter was a good source of information, but... Um, as soon as uh, our colleague here, Dan Huger, shared that there was a Wikipedia page, I went there instead because uh, you get an active timeline that has to actually be substantiated with real news sources and things like that. Um, and that that I found to be even better because people were immediately calling it a Russian civil war. Um, and, of course, then there were people really excited about that, um, which – you know, I don't know if everyone's history buffs uh, listening to this, but the last Russian Civil War, <laughs> about 10 million people died, yeah. most of them civilians. Um, Russia right now, uh, as can be seen by this whole affair, uh, is is a government of gangsters. Um, it is it is better than <laughs> the Bolsheviks uh, as far as the common person, but it's not great, and it's not like the the people everyone doesn't like are going to be hurt the most by this kind of conflict. It's going to be the people who had nothing to do with any of these conflicts, who don't deserve it. Uh, it's not something we should hope for. Um, we should hope for the war to be resolved in Ukraine. Uh, we should hope for peace. We should hope 
to an end of that. Um, but we shouldn't hope for, you know, one of the, the largest nations, the most uh, heavily armed nations in the world to descend into civil war. I mean, one difference between now and 1917 is that Russia has nuclear weapons. Yeah, so you don't you say. don't want a civil war in a country with nuclear weapons. You know, so uh, I believe also the second most nuclear largest nuclear stockpile uh, only to the United States. Again, not the kind of place that you want falling into a civil war. Like right, that. right. It's it's nothing to celebrate. It's something that everyone should have been afraid would happen. Um, as much as again, we don't want Putin in power. We don't want you know. Um, I get it. I get it. I don't like him either. Um, but this is not what we want. What we want are positive liberal reforms in Russia so they can have a real election and people can actually vote for someone else and get him out by peaceful means uh, and start improving their country again. That's what we should all want for Russia. That would be good for Ukraine as well. It'd be good for Georgia. It'd be good for Moldova. All their, the neighbors who are worried about Russia, um, we should want a free and prosperous Russia, <laughs> um, as opposed to what they have now, which is not that. So to bring some clarity, and I think this is an important distinction, um, what the Wagner Group is, is a paramilitary group. They are not, strictly speaking, a mercenary group. They are not, strictly speaking, independent. This is something Pergozin was, of course, uh, before he was the head of the Wagner Group, he was uh, the head of a very successful catering company. Uh, that uh, got substantial government contracts on which he built his own private fortune. I just have to note, too, that the Dylan, you were absolutely right, and I did visit the Wikipedia page as well and watched it there. But, you know, it, uh, the Wikipedia entry is the serious, very serious way of getting the information, but you, you don't get the great things like that meme of the guy with the small domino and then the very large domino at the back. And the first one is guy opens a hot dog stand and the last one is Russian coup. Um, but it, it is a very Russian story yes. of the way that this guy basically becomes uh, it ingratiated in some way to Vladimir Putin. Uh, as his chef or caterer or whatever it was, and eventually it allows him to become the leader of a paramilitary group, which is just wild. This is where crony capitalism will get you. Um, this is a story of Russian kleptocracy. Um, this is somebody who started out with some very entrepreneurial instincts in the 90s, started that hot dog cart. But quickly, the way that you climb to the top and a, you know, of that greasy pole that is the Russian Federation is through graft, bribes, connections. And he was very successful in doing that. Now, the Wagner Group is essential to Russian strategies of asymmetric warfare. To what goes on, remember what goes on when uh, Crimea was first occupied, as it was first these, oh, these aren't Russian forces. These were termed little green men who all of a sudden show up, paradrop into an area. They sow confusion. It's an unconventional asymmetric warfare strategy that Russia practices in Georgia and in uh, other places around the world. In some parts of Africa, the Wagner Group is active. And this is a strategy that the Russian state has employed to give it a tact, a, a, an advantage over foes who have more conventional military doctrines. Now, why would you do such a thing? Because, as we have seen since the beginning of the war, and as Pergozin would say to himself, the Russian defense ministry is in disarray and cannot prosecute an effective conventional war. What is revealed here, you know, there's, all, there's an awful lot of discussion among economists and people who study just political economy more generally about state capacity. Uh, Alex Tabarrok had an interesting piece uh, in uh, – he and Tyler Collins co-hosted blog Marginal Revolution talking about British response to COVID and the things that they did correctly, probably better than anybody else in the world did on the one hand, and then the things that they just fell flat on their faces. And he makes the remark, the coexistence of both high and low state capacity within a nation can be surprising. This is something that Americans do not understand and those in Western democracies don't understand as well as they should. States that are these sorts of kleptocracies, such as the Russian Federation is, is not just like America with a dictator. 
the fact that someone was able to march 25,000 troops hundreds of miles basically unopposed except by a couple of helicopters that were then shut down shot down is something that does not happen in a state as we understand it and encounter it in our day-to-day lives. But this is the story in much of the world is these are literally, you know, there is an impressive state gas monopoly in Russia. There is an impressive nuclear arsenal in Russia. There are impressive ballet academies in the Russian Federation. Um, Some things that are run with a high degree of competence in the Russian Federation, but there's all sorts of things that aren't. I mean, you look at this picture of these Wagner troops going into Rostov. Rostov is the head of the Southern Military Command. This is where the war in the Ukraine is being run out of. And they were able to enter the city completely unopposed, set up sandbags, checkpoints, all of this, and just take it. This would be like paramilitary group in the United States just walking into San Diego with its major naval bases, major military installations for the United States. You know, it's the 11th largest city in the Russian Federation. And some guys just walked in and occupied what was not only a very large city, but also the city in which the entire war effort is being directed out of. This this. This demonstrates what I think a lot of folks have made the argument that Russia is uh, very much weaker than it appears. There are a lot of folks, some on the sort of radical anti-war left, but a lot of folks on the right that have an anti-interventionist argument that's animated by the sort of conceit that the Russian state is somehow functional and competent. And it is simply not. Now, you can make a principled anti-interventionist argument, and we can have that discussion. But it should not be informed by the idea that Russia is in any sense a great power in the world today. It is not, and this is ample evidence. We have ample evidence over the weekend that it is not the case. Noah Rothman, a senior writer at National Review, his analogy to this to again to um, and I, I another reason why I appreciated some of the way that Twitter was handling this is there were a lot of people who admitted what they did not know and basically said, I get this a lot in the sports world too, where you know people who are a fan of one particular sport and another ask, you know, it's like I'm, I'm a fan of New York Rangers hockey and something happens in the NBA and I'll ask, you know, explain this to me in New York Rangers terms so I can understand it. Um, Noah uh, explained it again for, for people who are wondering about it. So picture Blackwater, but much more ideologically intense. Mercenaries, veterans, prisoners, mechanized with heavy armor. They've been in combat for a year, undersupplied and undersupported, and they're pissed about it. And they just captured Jacksonville. Um, that was his analogy for it. I, I want to come back to something, Dylan, that you have talked about when we've discussed this conflict in Ukraine before, which is, I think we get this from uh, the, especially an American inclination towards entertainment, but I think just generally a human inclination towards storytelling in that we want to, when we see a conflict, we want to break it down in terms of good guys and bad guys. And the simple reality here is that you have bad guys and other bad guys. Uh, the name of this paramilitary group, the Wagner Group, it comes from the composer, Wagner, and the associations that this paramilitary group has to neo-Nazism. So from the very beginning, you know, again, if they're trying to hide it, not doing a very good job, um, from the beginning... We have all reason to believe that this paramilitary operation is not some kind of hero. I mean, one of the things that on the, going back to Twitter again that did annoy me over the weekend was Michael Brendan Doherty at National Review basically engaging in a form of nut picking, which if you're not familiar with nut picking, I think it came from uh, David Korn, the leftist writer for I think he's still at Mother Jones. 
It says you nutpicking is finding an example of somebody on the other ideological side from you making the, the craziest and worst possible statement and then pointing to it and saying, see, this is what they're all like. And Michael's point was to say, you know, it was like, you know, ah, this kind of like hot moment where people were celebrating this um, uh, Prigozhin guy as being some kind of a liberal reformer. Like, no, uh, I, I did not personally see anybody of any meaningful importance saying anything like that. And that's a good thing. But to back, Dylan, to your point about the conflict in Ukraine as well, that we have you, – you, you do see this especially in the way that the United States and people in the United States have approached that conflict, which is the, the need to pick a side. And I understand it and to a certain, to a certain extent – Picking the side of Ukraine, who is the country that is being invaded and having its territory taken away by an aggressing power in Russia, is the side to be on. That doesn't necessitate defending everything about Ukraine or holding up Ukraine as if it is this idyllic example of liberal democracy or anything like that or human rights. And it it is not. Ukraine is a corrupt country. It has a lot of problems and it should not be held up as an example of anything. And you don't need to go any further than saying Russia should not be invading and annexing its territory and bombing the citizens of Ukraine. You can stop there. You don't have to hold it up as a great example, nor do you have to do that for the Wagner group. And that should be even more abundantly clear that generally not a great idea to celebrate paramilitary operations like that. No matter what ideology they profess, even if they aren't neo-Nazis and even if they are as uh, Michael Brendan Doherty alleged others were saying, some kind of liberal reformers, there's still a paramilitary operation. Uh, rooting for that kind of unrest in Russia is not a good thing. And I, I did appreciate the number of people over the weekend pointing out what should be very obvious, which is you, you don't have to engage in a very simplified the devil you know versus the devil you don't kind of analysis of this and say we look at vladimir putin he's a terrible guy he has turned you know russia from um what it had it, where it was at the end of the cold war after the dissolution of the soviet union he has facilitated its uh, rebirth now into a kleptocratic state he's a bad guy we can all agree on that um, that doesn't mean that what theoretically would come after him if he were deposed would be better. It could be worse. It could be better. It could be just as bad, but in an entirely different form. And when you throw thousands of nuclear warheads into the mix, unrest in a nation like that is not a good thing. But I also saw somebody else making the point, and if either of any of you want to comment on this, uh, please feel free to do so. The uh, Was Francis Fukuyama, again, just right? Like, look around the world at the West's enemies. You know, to your point, Dan, I think you're kind of hinting at this. They are kind of in shambles. Uh, I, I didn't have a chance last week. We had Acton University and I did a Acton line episode with David Bonson where I had intended to ask him about these reports coming out of China about the Chinese economy. Again, you always have to you know, take it with um, a, a large canister of salt when you hear reports about the Chinese economy because you can't trust the Chinese to be honest about this stuff. The, their economy is not in great shape. I mean, they have a lot of debt over leveraging problems similar to the United States. Uh, they are still an authoritarian state, which is going to prevent the free flow of information that is incredibly important to being not just a well-functioning state, but a well-functioning economy. The West enemies are not in a great place right now. And again, we shouldn't be rooting for chaos. Chaos is a bad thing. Uh, but, you know, was was it always the end of history? I was talking with someone last week as well uh, about China in particular, and and he was very concerned about people um, they knew there and things like that. And we don't know how long this will go on. It may go on for a very long time, but 
the Soviet Union collapsed almost overnight. It was very surprising. Uh, but it collapsed because it was based on a view of the human person that simply is not true. You just can't run a whole economy, a whole nation, as if people have no inherent rights and dignity. You can't. It does not hold together forever. Um, and there are a lot of these places in the world, you know, the biggest one being communist China, they're still trying to run their country like that. Um, they have expended, you know, they've they've murdered tens of th millions of people uh, in that quest um, because they view them all as expendable. Um, but every generation there is, you know, cracks in the edifice. Um, I think, yeah, that, that does speak a little bit to Fuku Fukuyama's uh, the thesis um, that really democracy um, and, you know, kind of Western model has won out and will win out uh, eventually. Um, but I also, I also think it's important to keep in mind that the, the Marxists are determinists. Um, and I think it would be a mistake to replace one determinism with another. Um, so yes, things are looking good. Um, but like we got to make sure that here at home we are also respecting the dignity of the human person in all things. That our system is actually grounded in nature and natural law, um, and that we're not just kind of getting a big head about well we're winning and they're losing and we're just going to get sloppier and sloppier here at home. Um, there's there's nothing this side of paradise that's going to last forever. Um, so yeah, there's on the one hand yeah this. This looks good for democracy. This looks good for uh, the friends of the West and the West in general. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you look at the way we're supporting Ukraine um, and NATO, for that matter. It's arms, which I get it. They're they're being attacked. Okay. Um, but it's not diplomats. It's not people helping them even internally negotiate. Well, how do you preserve political freedom when you're worried about one of your political parties being pro-Russia? How do you preserve religious freedom when you're worried about, you know, occasional, although not probably overblown, but to some degree, I'm sure there's a priest or two that's stored arms in the bank, in the basement of their, you know, Orthodox church, Russian Orthodox church outside of Russia. Yeah, I get it. Like, that's very, very complicated. That's hard to deal with. Um, but if we care about those Western values, we should be doing more than sending guns. We should be sending ways. There are people in Ukraine that want a genuine liberal society in all the good senses of that term, we should be helping them have that instead of just helping them kill people. Um, and I see a lot of the latter and not a lot of the former. So, yeah, I don't like the the heroes and villains narrative of things. Um, uh, I, I, I don't want to exalt anyone in any government position for that matter. Um, that's just government's messy. That's how it goes. Um but uh, and, and the other side is we, sh we shouldn't just take things for granted that, yeah, things are looking good. Um, well, you know what? And I believe it was 1904, 1904, there was a failed Russian revolution. 1909, there was a, a volume which is really good and I highly recommend to show that there is alternative strands of Russian thought uh, that, that understood the importance of tradition and religion and human rights. It's called Veki. It means landmarks. And it was this reflection from ex-members of the Russian intelligentsia uh, who had basically in various forms all found religion. Um, and, and they moved away from the Marxism that was so common. And it, they reflected on this failed revolution. Uh, it might have been the failed war with Japan as well. I'm probably confusing dates. Um, but and they, they were kind of taking a victory lap a little bit. Like, I think they say some really insightful things. But eight years later, they were all on a ship. Uh, to ex well, not exactly eight. But, you know, a, a decade later, they were all exiled from their homeland and everything fell apart. Um, so things can change. Uh, things can change faster than people like. They can change for the better, but they can also change for the worse. Uh, and if you just get lazy about the things that really matter and take them all for granted... It might be you next uh, rather than the people uh, that you're celebrating the downfall. Yeah, you reminded me of this uh, a nice little parable in 
the movie, and I'm sure it doesn't come from it, but I remember it from the movie Charlie Wilson's War that uh, Gustav Ricardos played tremendously by Philip Seymour Hoffman in that film tells to uh, Tom Hanks' Charlie Wilson about uh, the little boy in the Zen Master. It's the little boy's birthday, and for his birthday, he gets uh, a horse, and everybody says, oh, wonderful, and the Zen Master says, we'll see. Uh, and then the little boy falls off of the horse and he breaks his leg and everybody in the village says, how terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. And then a war breaks out and everybody young has to go off and serve in it, but the boy can't because his leg's messed up. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. So Fukuyama, I think, is essentially right. People don't understand Fukuyama. People don't read Fukuyama. They read that end of history and... And, and draw, draw their own conclusions draw their from the title. Draw yes. their own conclusions. Yes. So one of the things, and when Dylan talks about this, this other paths that Russian civilization could have taken, we have that example, you know, the, the great um, sort of, uh, oh, history's back on argument people make is, of course, the rise of China. But again, how does this rise happen? It happens through market liberalization. What are we seeing now? As they move away from that, we're seeing it increasingly not become an export-led dynamic economy, but become a real estate Ponzi scheme in which you know more of the Chinese economy is invested in real estate than any other country. Um, if you look at the numbers, it's 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 an outlandish. Uh, percentage of the GDP, and I could I could throw some numbers in the show notes later, so people can dig into that. What you also have is, you know, I, you know, I was thinking about this again. State capacity varies. If you look, we have done a fantastic job bringing to light the terrible situation in Hong Kong and the uh, terrible circumstances that Jimmy Lai has been forced into. And there's a terrible system of repression in China, but is not evenly distributed. Uh, one of the things, uh, there's uh, Dan uh, Wang, who, uh, among other things, is a visiting scholar at the Yale School's Paul Tsai China Center. Um, he does an annual letter every year. And among the things that he talks about in his annual publicly posted letter is sort of what he thinks of the state of the Chinese economy, political situation, et cetera. And one of the big news items in his 2022 letter is that he left uh, one of the major cities. I forget if he was, I think he might've been in Shanghai and was in for the lockdowns in one of these major urban centers in China, which is, uh, which were highly repressed. And he moved to the Southern mountainous region of China that never saw the sort of lockdowns that the major cities saw. And he talks about the history of this region of China and how this has always been a mountain people. And, you know, just like Appalachia in the United States, there are certain regions that are more resistant to state power than others. And mountains very much helps people do that. So you have... Um, you have even even in these highly repressive systems, it's not evenly distributed. You have when you look at the other possibilities, you know, communist China is the most backwards Chinese nation on the planet. We have a Republic of China that is an extremely dynamic economy, uh, sometimes referred to as Taiwan. Um, it is, you know, you you know, every metric of human flourishing you could ask is better in Taiwan. You have Singapore, which is, if not a majority, a, at least a plurality, ethnic Chinese. Again, extremely dynamic economy, extremely wealthy, you know, performing leaps and bounds ahead of China. One of the big stories that is not one of our stories this week, but was uh, Prime Minister Modi's visit with President Biden, which is a very interesting visit. There's been a lot of press coverage. There is a lot of criticism of Prime Minister Modi, uh, including from uh, former President Barack Obama after this uh, summit. Um, but one of the things that Modi does is unevenly in fits and starts, though, he has successfully uh, 
in fits and starts, continued a liberalization process that was begun under Prime Minister Rao in the Indian National Congress, extended by Prime Minister Vajpayee, who was in Modi's own party, and less enthusiastically than either of those, but still on the margins has made some sort of incremental market-oriented reforms. And that has resulted in India being able to increase its state capacity, allowing things like electrification, running water in new places, real substantive gains. And they have done it by embracing a model that until the 1990s, they had assiduously avoided. They were Before that, it was a state socialism model. It was democratic, but it was a state socialism model. And again, the gains that India has seen, which again is a society that has many illiberal currents, are the product of buying in to some core elements of liberal society. Now, what else does Fukuyama say? He doesn't say that everybody's happy with this. In fact, this is a fertile breeding ground for nihilism when you have this sort of affluence and when you have people that um, you know, they, they suffer a crisis of meaning and that can often take the form of ideological movements of both the left and the right that are consumed and sort of are start looking for meaning in all the wrong places. And we see that today in both the developed world and the developing world. And I think, I think Fukuyama is by and large correct. Let's move on to our other topic, which for most of last week, while we were uh, conducting Acton University here in Grand Rapids and before there was a coup launched in Russia, this was the only thing that seemingly everybody was talking about, which was the disappearance of the Ocean Gate Titan submarine, which was going down on an expedition with five people in order to view the Titanic. And we found out on Thursday they had discovered a debris field near the Titanic, the remains of this submarine, all the people on board had perished. Uh, when I noted that it seems to me that we have to talk about this, uh, I appreciated what Dylan said, which is that we should deal with this seriously. Uh, and we should, because that is the way to deal with a story like this. But I want to note in the beginning here that I understand entirely why people were approaching this with a kind of gallows humor. And I think it's because there's just so much about this story that is absolutely terrifying. The idea of being trapped in this submersible miles below the surface of the ocean uh, and what we believed for a period of time might be possible and what people were hoping for uh, really until the end was that you know they were disconnected from the surface they didn't know where they were but they would be found before they ran out of oxygen and what ended up happening and we'll get into this company that was doing this in a minute I am sure is there was a catastrophic implosion of this submarine under all the pressure that it was uh, under and given its rather amazingly shoddy construction uh, considering what it was going down there to do the idea that of, of what happened is that these people perished instantaneously, really before they even knew that anything was happening, as opposed to the other possible reality, which is they spent roughly five days living in dread and terror that they were going to run out of oxygen and never be found before they did so. You know, it given the two alternatives, what happened is is preferable to what we were all imagining. But I think the reason people approach this with this very dark sense of humor is it, it just struck a chord with everyone of just how absolutely terrifying it would be to be in what they imagined their position was. But the things that I can't there, – there, there's a bunch of stuff in here that I just cannot get over. And I guess the first one I, I have to bring up is 
there was this CBS News report that was making its rounds on social media about this company and about this vessel. And it just comes across to me so clearly that these people who were behind this company were laughably unserious about this. Uh, one of the pieces of information that I saw over the weekend is the CEO of, uh, of the company that perished aboard this submersible had bragged that the carbon fiber that was used to construct the submarine, that he got it at a deep discount from Boeing because it was beyond the shelf life for being used in airplanes. But apparently in his mind, good enough to go to the bottom of the ocean? I, 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 the part that I can't get over is what is the attraction? The seats abort seats, I say in scare quotes, because uh, one of the other reasons that I couldn't do this, you have to sit the entire time cross-legged on the floor of this submersible. Seats aboard this were a quarter of a million dollars. You know, a lot was being made of the fact that there were wealthy people that were aboard this uh, submersible. Um, the most despicable comments that were made were about the can we put more billionaires on a sub like this or people um, – Ellie Mistal, who I think is a Supreme Court uh, commentator for Salon, I think, which that should give you all of the seriousness with which Ellie Mistal should be regarded – um, basically wish, like, could we put the conservative justices of the Supreme Court on such a ship, which is just a, a kind of a cheap and five degrees off saying it directly way to wish death on your political opponents. But these are people who could afford, if they really wanted to see the Titanic, to do it in the proper way. You know, people like James Cameron, the filmmaker, who is part of this community that does these kinds of dives – why would you go cut rate? I, I just cannot wrap my mind around the idea that people who do not need to do something on the cheap would, would seemingly agree to do something like this on the cheap. Um, and look, there's there are other parts of this, too, that I think uh, don't deserve as much opprobrium as they've got, like the idea of using a video game controller to control the submarine. The, the idea of trying to simplify technology as much as possible and controls for something like this actually is a, a good drive and something that we should engage in. That, that doesn't mean, obviously, that the construction or the control of this submarine, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can read about how they were connected to the surface and there really only is up or down. You really can't navigate it. It just seems a very cut-rate version of doing this, and if you have the money, I don't understand why you wouldn't do it in a more conventional way, at least until the technology that this OceanGate company was trying to utilize had been venerated more than it actually was to lessen the possibility that it ends as tragically as this story did. And and that is the point where I should have said at the beginning, should pray for the souls of all the people who were aboard and the families who are now having to continue on after all of this. Like if you're inclined to make jokes, which if you've been listening to this podcast, you know I'm a person inclined to, to make jokes pretty frequently. Take a moment to think about what the families of those people are going through and whether or not you should make comments um, that are that insensitive. So uh, there's a few things I'd say here and I don't, I don't want to go full on uh, in defense mode here, but um, OceanGate had gone down to the Titanic, I believe, some like seven or eight times in the last two years. And at least one of those, as recently as 2021, was the Titanic sub or the, ti the Titan, Titan sub. Um, so if you want to know why people were willing to get on this, well, that sub had done it before. Um, as for the, the building materials, Boeing has officially denied uh, selling any materials uh, to OceanGate. It's probably just a PR tactic uh, to try to dissociate themselves from what happened. Um, but I have no idea. Any like I like a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of memes going around of people. You know, I'm gonna take off my my Titan sub hat and put on my Russian Civil War hat, and I'm gonna be an expert in that sort of thing. Like I don't know 
anything about the the materials and what really the shelf life means. Was that just airline regulations that they couldn't, you know, maybe it was perfectly good material um, that just for whatever reason, you know, U.S. law, aviation law, so you can't you can't use that if it's like been 10 years old or whatever. So I I think it's important to the the temptation here is you have rich people going to visit the Titanic. The Titanic uh, was one of the deadliest shipwrecks in human history. 1,500 people died. Um, and it was very famously a lot of rich people. Um, and it was this maiden voyage. And the boast of the designer of the Titanic uh, was that it was unsinkable uh, to the point where they removed lifeboats in order to make more room on the deck and things like that. Um, and it ended up hitting an iceberg and sinking, I believe, 1919. Um, and so people want to draw the parallel. Um, and it's facile. I just don't think it actually fits um, for a lot of reasons. Um, that's not to say that I think it's a good idea to go into a submarine. Like, like I don't watch submarine movies because I know at some point something will go wrong and water will start getting in. Because that's what happens in every single submarine movie, and it's terrifying. Um, so I agree. I think most people who are making jokes and to be charitable to them, it's probably because death is terrifying. And this is a particularly terrifying way to imagine dying. Um, and so what do you do? You either laugh or you cry. Um, I will say that I do think there's sometimes a moral duty to choose the latter rather than the former. Um, five people died, um, and hopefully it was the sort of thing that was instantaneous and painless, but it's still tragic. Um, it, I don't care how much money they had. I don't care if they were bad people. Um, we shouldn't with, wish death upon people. That's the essence of hatred. Uh, St. Saint, uh, John says, you know, to... He who hates his brother is a murderer. So now, you know, that's that's like that commandment that everybody goes around thinking, you know, I'm not a bad person. I've never murdered anyone. Well, if you go around wishing the deaths of someone, you have everything inside of you to be that. Um, you should not want to be that. You cannot possibly be happy if you're walking around with hatred in your heart. Um, so I don't care what your ideology is. Uh, if you are, you know, radical, you know, anti-wealth sort of person, you should be hoping for the wealthy to be more generous or something like that. Find a way to turn these feelings into something positive and constructive rather than just spiteful and hateful and negative because it's going to eat you up uh, probably before, hopefully to some degree, before you do anything to anybody else. The sea is a great and terrible thing. And people forget that. And people die. Routinely, two miles underneath the surface is very far underneath the surface. I was thinking about over the weekend, um, you know, we are, Grand Rapids, we're about half hour from Lake Michigan. And a lot of people who have never been to the state of Michigan have no idea about how large this lake is. It's 80 miles across. You cannot, when you get there, see to the other side. It is a very dangerous place, even an Inland Lake, let alone the North Atlantic. Um, well, all, the, all the Great Lakes as well. I mean, I remember being, one of the reasons I felt drawn to this story is uh, I find shipwrecks fascinating. Um, and I remember watching a History Channel program, I think it was in like fifth or sixth grade, on the Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, immortalized in song by uh, Gordon Lightfoot, in part because uh, a news article on it got the name of the ship wrong. Um, but it is, it, it certainly has the capacity to take life as well. Not again, the, these, I remember somebody commenting to me once that it's like, you, know, you call it a lake, it's a sea. I mean, they, it is an, an enormous body of water. And I grew up, I mean, most, a lot of my youth I spent on, Boats, and I know people who have lost children. I know people who have lost brothers. I know um, a lot of people. Um, if you go to the city of Grand Haven, which is if you go basically directly west of where we are, there is a pier. There is a pier in which people routinely go out during rough weather on the pier, get washed off and perish. And there is a memorial on that pier that lists the names of these folks and pleads with people 
not to jump off the pier, not to go out there. And, 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 and people still do um, because they don't respect the sea. One of the things, you know, there's a spirit of exploration that um, is, I think, also part of the human experience. But we've been to the Titanic. We have climbed that mountain. Um, and, I, and I think at this point, without any sort of scientific reason, I think you are very much uh, risking your life in an unnecessary way to go two miles under the sea for no scientific or exploratory purpose. It's very dangerous. Um, and uh, I hope, you know, I mean, the, the, the jokes are in poor taste. Um, but I hope what people take away from this is a greater respect for the sea. Yeah, the, part of your last point there is, is one of the things, too, I want to push back against that I did see some people saying that this was you know, a case of this is what happens with explorers, right? You know, it's like Magellan doesn't make it back from, um, you know, his explorations. And this is not exploration. Uh, there is a, look, I understand the fascination with the Titanic. There's a reason that uh, James Cameron's movie Titanic is one of the highest grossing films of all time. I probably rented the National Geographic uh, VHS, again, to date myself, uh, documentary on Bob Ballard's expedition to discover where the Titanic was in 1988, where we did not know where it was. That fits into the category that, Dan, you were talking about of exploration for a clear purpose. We didn't know where it was. We had never seen it. And we wanted to discover where it was. I can't shake this feeling that I have had about this since I first heard about this story, that there's something just kind of gross to me about it. Um, that, again, because there isn't a clear scientific or exploration purpose behind it, that it, it, it functions as a form of kind of tragedy porn tourism. You're going to see a mass graveyard. And I think there is – you could try to draw parallels there by saying you know, people go to battlefields. You can go to Gettysburg. You can see the memorial at uh, Ground Zero uh, where the World Trade Centers once stood. Those are places, uh, as you're pointing out, with Grand Haven and the pier in which a memorial has been constructed for the purpose of remembering the lives that were lost there. The same I don't think can be said about the final resting place of the Titanic and the, I think roughly 1,500 people who died in that spot. And I, I just cannot shake – and again, this, this I, you know, I don't think anybody who's listening to this podcast is going to interpret this way that thinks I think these people deserve their fate because they were doing something that I find to be kind of gross. Of course I don't think that. But I can't shake that feeling that there's just something very gross about what they were doing. And uh, I'll push back only slightly on what you were saying, Dylan, and that is I think I think the through line between the Titanic and this story is hubris. Um, it is yeah, – you, you're correct in pointing out that it had made these dives before. But there was a whole lot that I think we've learned in the last week about this company, about the construction of this vessel, the way that if you've seen that CBS report, they bragged about certain parts of this being from Camping World, uh, the way that the only connection that they had to the surface was unwired, and if they got disconnected, they were essentially in the position that they were. Now, we, we thought for a while that they had just lost connection. Uh, we did not know that, um, and again, th I, I think we can say thankfully, it seems that they perished instantaneously, much better than the alternative of suffering for, for five days before uh, the inevitable end. Um, that they didn't have a wire connection, that you know, essentially there was a, not a lot of uh, ability to navigate this uh, submarine. There was like an up button and a down button, and that's really about it. Uh, it. It 
I see a through line of hubris in all of this, of the same mentality that said that the Titanic was unsinkable, that said we can do this. And what strikes me, your point about like Boeing and all of that government regulation, just because the airline industry says something is beyond its shelf life doesn't necessarily mean that it is poor quality, that it can't be used for other things. I I take your point there. Um, But I I see a thread of of hubris running through all of this, of thinking that, you know, we can do this. And, And... that kind of hubris, to a point, can, can be a good thing. You know, it, it, what d- drives innovation is this belief that I can do something that nobody else has done before, that I can do it in a way that nobody else has done before. Um, but I think that there is an element of prudence that needs to come into it as well that just does not seem to have really been a feature of OceanGate and their uh, what they're doing here. And I, I, we're going to learn a lot more because the inevitable outcome is a whole lot of people are going to file a whole lot of lawsuits over this. And we are really going to discover what OceanGate did and did not know about the relative safety of the things that they were doing and the way that they had constructed this and other vessels. Uh, So there'll be a lot more that we'll learn there. But I I do think that there is that through line of hubris that, you know, sadly, just as with the Titanic, cost people their lives. Uh, There may very well be. I'm not trying to defend the motivations of people who think such a trip is a good idea. It's it's pretty unimaginable to me to want to do that. Um, nor would I compare them to Magellan or any other such explorer. Um, but I will I will say this one thing in terms of I don't yeah, I don't think tragedy tourism is a good thing, although there's reasons why people say go and visit, you know, concentration camps or whatever. Partly it's to say we don't want to forget. Right, you can you can put paint a little bit nicer motives, I think, on them perhaps. Um, although I, you know, I still I have yeah, the I, same feeling that you do of, of this doesn't quite feel right. I yeah, feel and I think gross even about it, you know, even when you go to um, Auschwitz too, right? You know, it's like there is an attempt to teach right. that is there that is just does not seem to be present in this story. Right. Um, even so, uh, we have basically two final frontiers in terms of human exploration. One is outer space, and one is the bottom of the ocean. Um, and the way in which space currently any kind of progress is being made when it comes to space is a very, very eccentric billionaire is sending unmanned rockets into the air. Now, thankfully, he is not sending manned rockets because at least one or two of these have exploded, Um, and we would have a very similar story. Um, But right now, that kind of... Travel, I guess, uh, to put it in a very, very general form, is an extreme luxury. The only way it will get safer and will not be an extreme luxury will be something that perhaps everyone can even benefit from. Who knows? To some degree, we don't even know what's on the bottom of the ocean floor. You know, there might be something down there which is the the next big secret of clean energy. Probably not, but you know what I mean. Like the the sort of thing that we don't know what we don't know. We don't know, or you know, Mars is in fact terraformable. Um, we might be able to go there and actually, you know, have a a new place uh, for people uh, to then expand our exploration further throughout the solar system and galaxy. It's an exciting thing to think about. Um, it's probably going to start with a bunch of billionaires doing stupid things. That's just kind of the way it works. I mean, I have a giant flat screen TV in my house, and it was affordable. Uh, I remember I watched uh, the Price is Right uh, rerun. Uh, there's a Price is Right channel or something like that on, on Roku or one of the free things, and my kids have been watching it, and I turned off what I was watching. It was an old episode of the Price is Right from the 1980s, I believe, uh, maybe even earlier. But the big prize of one of the games... Uh, was a TV slash Betamax uh, cabinet. The screen was tiny by today's comparisons. It was probably probably weighed like a ton. You know, it's just this massive furniture piece. The guy had to guess the price. He guessed too low. The actual retail price was ten thousand dollars, which adjusted for inflation, I cannot imagine what something like that would cost in today's dollars. Um, I think it's stupid to spend that much money on a TV right now. It's not as, you know, as much an act of hubris or anything like that. I'm not, again, I don't want to push back too hard against you, but that's, that is kind of the world we're living in. If, if, 
And maybe maybe you can say, look, this is different. There are real scientists who are trying to go down there and who are doing everything careful. And I think that's probably true, in which case this isn't, you know, th this gets mitigated a little bit by the fact that it's not like NASA giving up. Um, but still, um, if there's ever to come a day where we have our own amazing Sea Lab cities or whatever, I don't think that's necessary or going to happen. But you know what I mean? Like, but it would if, be kind of cool. If there's some, yeah, if there's some human utility, uh, which is actually going to improve flourishing for people up on the surface that's down beneath the ocean, the God put there for us to find um, providentially, it's going to start with eccentric billionaires going on trips. Um, hopefully they will do that more carefully, more safely, more respectfully towards the great unknown uh, of the sea in the future. Uh, but it's probably going to look like that. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes where you're going to find a link that you can use to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. A program note before we go, there will be no episode next week as we will be off for Independence Day. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>